With that, we'll continue with worshiping God through reading his scriptures. Today, we'll be reading Acts chapter 4. We'll be starting from the beginning of the chapter and finishing at the end, and we'll be skipping over some parts. So we'll start off with verses 1 through 13. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel and by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We'll move down to verse 17. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they released when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And we'll move down to verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal as signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and today, what we see here now uh, is the first persecution, right? The first place Christians face hostility and opposition uh, to the message of the gospel. And so we're going to take a look at three things today. First, we're going to take a look at gospel adversity. Second, we're going to take a look at Holy Spirit and prayer. And then third, we're going to take a look at courage and grace. All right, those are our three points today. So first, let's take a look at gospel adversity our passage, the very ver first verses, they tell us that as Peter and John are speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And I love this. What does it say? They're annoyed. <laughs> They're greatly annoyed. It's funny because, you know, like Luke could have used any word. Like they were angry. It's like uh, they weren't angry yet. <laughs> they were greatly annoyed. You know, uh, it's like when uh, sometimes Jen and I, you know, we're in the house and I can, you know, I'm like, is she angry? No, she's not there yet. She's just kind of annoyed with me. I'm like, okay, this is it. I got to let it, I got to, I got to do some chores in the house, right? Bring that down. Why were they annoyed at the disciples? It says here, postscript, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. That's it, Right? Um, it's good. I remember when I was in seminary, my professor would say, look, guys, the gospel's already offensive, so don't be a jerk, <laughs> right? And so they're not, they're not annoyed by Peter and John, their personality. They're annoyed by their message. Why is that so offensive? Well, when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, what do you have to talk about? You have to talk about his death. When you talk about the death of Jesus, what do you have to talk about? You have to talk about why he died. When you talk about why D Jesus died, then what do you have to talk about? You have to talk about sin. And when you talk about sin, um, people get squeamish, right? People get uncomfortable. Uh, people get defensive. People get what? Annoyed. <laughs> And it's not just people in our passage, friends, this is also you and me, right? Without divine intervention of the Holy Spirit, this is us, this is everyone. We don't like when our weaknesses and our faults are being addressed. We don't like it when our sin is being targeted. Unless your identity is rooted in the forgiveness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, friends, we will get greatly annoyed too. When someone talks about, you know, the gospel, you're like, ah, oh, this guy is so preachy. I'm getting annoyed. So it's really important to identify the opposition to Jesus and the gospel message. It's not intellectual. It's not a matter of historical evidence. It's not a matter of rhetorical persuasion. It's deeply spiritual. Let me explain. I don't know how many of you word, uh, or sorry, have heard of Pascal's wager uh, Pascal was a mathematician, uh, philosopher, scientist, and he said this, right? He said, you can look at a Christian, and they cannot empirically or scientifically prove uh, that there is a God, that there is judgment, but they believe in it. That's a Christian. 
And then he said, you can take a person who's not a Christian, and this person cannot empirically or scientifically prove that there is no God, that there is no judgment, but they believe in that. So Pascal is saying there is no scientifically, uh, scientific proof that there is no judgment, and Christians cannot scientifically prove that there is judgment. So who wins intellectually? No one does. It's a wash. Pascal would differ because he said, so this is the real question. The question is not who can prove that there is eternal life or if there is no eternal life after death. He says, here is the real question. Pascal would say, who stands to lose more if they're wrong? Right? That's what he says. He says, if Christians are wrong, they lose finitely. Right? When Christians die and they find out there's no judgment, they lose finitely. They lose some pride. Um, they lose in the fact that there are some things they could have done here on earth. But he says if people who aren't Christian are wrong, what do they lose? He says they lose infinitely, right? They have to face infinite justice, infinite judgment before God. And so Pascal is not using this as a proof to say that it's irrational to disbelieve. He says, no, this is a proof that one shouldn't be nonchalant about Christianity. That's what he's saying. He's saying you should at least take it seriously. Pascal was a brilliant man. He was one of the greatest mathematicians and scientists and philosophers. And, but when he sat down to talk about, it, talk about Christianity with his friends, they wouldn't say, you're right, Pascal. I stand to lose infinitely here. Right? I better think about this. No. What would they say? So what's for dinner? That's what they'd say, right? I heard there's a great new seafood restaurant down the street. This probably drove Pascal crazy. <laughs> you see, underneath his thinking is, there, he's, he's thinking there's something driving my friends to ignore the gospel, and it's not reason. Something else is going on here. It's unwise to have this kind of attitude, especially if you experience suffering and loss. Something is deeply going on. They're, they're annoyed. Something is annoying them. What is that? You see, if you look at Pascal, you look at Augustine, you look at Bach, great thinkers, Christians. Then you look at Marcus Aurelius, you look at Hume and Nietzsche, great thinkers, not Christian. So what's going on here? It's not an intellectual debate. It's something deeper. Um, recently, I, I revisited a book by Stephen Covey, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in his chapter on the second habit, he says that every human being has a center. And this center is a life system that we build things on. Uh, they are our values, our deepest desires that uh, becomes the basis for our security and our wisdom and guidance and strength. Uh, Jesus, or Peter would call it a cornerstone. And in his book, he gives examples of what can become our center. And so... One example he gives is a career. If career is your center, um, it, it then becomes your identity. It becomes your sense of worth, uh, your purpose, right? Well, why do you wake up? I wake up so I could progress my career. That's my purpose. And he says this will make you feel secure and wise and well-guided if your career is doing well and strong if it's doing well. 
But he also says, if career is your center, you become extremely vulnerable to moods and emotions and feelings and circumstances related to your work, right? Maybe, maybe there are friends around you who are suffering, family members who are suffering, but for whatever reason, this email, this gets your attention. If you see people who are higher up or further along in their career, it, it grates you and it, it makes you discontent. When there's conflict at work, it, you can't let it go. Why? Because your life is career. There's nothing bigger than your career in your life. So when career is bad, life is bad. As your center goes, you go. And uh, he gives many examples that anything could be our center. Um, image and beauty, uh, marriage and family, pride and reputation. But what the gospel does is this. It comes and it points to your center. It points to what Peter would say, your cornerstone. And do you know what the gospel says? It says, your center is inadequate. It comes after your cornerstone and it says, anything but the gospel as your center is a fragile foundation. It can't save you from death. It can't save you from pain and suffering. It can't save you from despair and depression. It can't save you from conflict. It will all come humbling down. Let me, let me take myself as an example. Let me go first, all right? You know, sometimes uh, my center can be my efforts and my independence. What do I mean by that? Well, um, I like to work real hard. I take pride in my work ethic. So I like to read and write and practice and strategize and plan. And, 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 and I realized this several years ago that I do this because somehow it, it gives me a sense of worth and approval from others, you know? Like, I'm not the smartest guy. <laughs> so how else can I feel worthy? How else can I get people's approval? Um, I remember we were uh, talking. I forgot where we were, but... You know, Jen and I and some other couples were talking, and they're talking about um, things that they want to look in a spouse. And Jen said, well, you know, you don't want to date someone too good-looking because, you know, that'll make you feel insecure. So I'm not the best-looking guy either. <laughs> right? <clears throat> but, you know, oh, my work ethic, that's something I can control. Right? Just drink another cup of coffee. <clears throat> it's my justification. It's my righteousness. My work ethic and my self-reliance, that becomes my identity, you know, my, my sense of worth, my center. But what does the gospel come and say to that? It's inadequate. The gospel says no amount of effort is going to justify me before God, before others. Uh, the gospel says I'll never have all the answers. The future is unpredictable. Pursuit of this center is chasing the wind. And it always leaves me discontent, right? Despair, anxious, and spiritually lost. On my good days, when I hear friends and family and you all poke that center, on my good days, by God's grace, I repent. And I can confess of my sin of pride and 
self-sufficiency, false self-sufficiency, and throw myself on the forgiveness of Christ, on my bad days, like the scribes and the Sadducees, when my false center is addressed, I get annoyed. <laughs> Look at all that I'm doing. <laughs> I remember when I was getting ordained as a pastor, uh, my mentor uh, told me, um, Rich, you know you're insufficient for this, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? I just pre preached a great sermon as an intern. I don't know. I thought it was amazing. I was annoyed. I wanted to hear uh, affirmation of my abilities, right, to accomplish the task, not the lack thereof. And I remember him, though, but he, and he said this the night before my ordination. Uh, I was like, yeah, you should have told me before this. But uh, he said, Rich, the irony of life is the only way that you and I can become truly sufficient is to realize that we are insufficient, right, that our centers are false centers, and we need a firm foundation. And that comes from understanding that we are great sinners in deep need of the saving, forgiving, and enduring love of Jesus. prod in my center, right? We all have an instinctual center. Um, to, and, and mine was, that my instinctual center is to accomplish things with my own efforts. That's my, my, that's my instinctual center, right? If there's a problem, I want to fix it. Outside of the supernatural work of God. And that's why the Sadducees and the scribes are so annoyed by the gospel. It's targeting their center. You know? The scribes' center, what was their center? It was their morality. They were the religious leaders of the day. They tried to follow the Old Testament to a T. This was their identity. This was their reputation. But what did the gospel say to them? What Peter is saying, you killed Jesus, right? What is Peter doing? What is the gospel saying through Peter to them? It's saying, your morality is inadequate. You messed up. <laughs> Regarding the law, God demands perfection. Regarding the spirit of the law, God demands utter integrity. Regarding love, God demands complete sacrifice. And so the gospel was saying to them through Peter, confess your sins and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They did not like hearing that. Now, the Sadducees, they were the most powerful sect uh, in the Jewish religious circle, right? And so the Sadducees' center was what? It wasn't their morality. It was their power. They were much wealthier and much more powerful than the scribes. The scribes judged them for not being moral. Sadducees, so what? We're the ones in power. And, and, and the reason why they had so much power is because they were able to compromise some of their beliefs so that they can make political partnerships with Rome and, and get power. So they denied the resurrection. And the gospel says to the Sadducees, what? Your desire for power and control is inadequate. You must submit ultimately to the power of the risen Christ, even when it's communicated by powerless people, by fishermen. Can you imagine that, right? 
it doesn't matter where you are in the power spectrum of this world. If you are communicating the gospel under the power of Christ, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You must submit to that. They're saying, who do you think you are? And so what we see here, church, uh, opposition to the gospel is not an intellectual matter. There's something deeper here. It's because the gospel is always, always going after your center. So it's, it's the reason why I could preach a sermon and 30 people have a different response because they have different centers. It wants to uproot and replace what governs us at the instinctual, impulsive level, right? We all got instinctual, impulsive, right, center. And we have to be really careful here because it's easy to put, our, put ourselves in Peter's shoes and it's easy to put ourselves on the moral high ground, you know? It's always, we always come to a text like this and, and uh, we go, oh, I know someone who needs to listen to this. <laughs> or I know this person is the scribe in Sadducee. I'm the one speaking truth to power, right? That, that, it's always every single one of them. Never, no one ever puts ourselves in the scribes and Sadducees' shoes. No one ever likes to be compared to Peter. We all want to be Paul, but no, we're all Peter. I remember my professor always would tell us, he would remind us every day, you are not Paul. <laughs> there was one Paul. You guys are all Peter, right? Peter. Dang it. It's always easier to take the moral high ground, but that's a trap. We cannot judge the scribes and the Sadducees right now because we are the same. Because when God comes after our center, we get greatly annoyed. Right? We get greatly annoyed. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to listen. And sometimes we will even oppose the gospel work that God wants to do in our hearts. It's not because we're being logical. It's a battle of sinners. It's a spiritual battle. So how do we win this battle? Where can you and I find hope uh, in the midst of this struggle? This brings us to the second point, the Holy Spirit in prayer. We see in verse 7 here that when Peter pokes the Sadducees' center, they ask Peter, by what power, by what name do you do this, right? Who do you think you are? Speaking to us. Right, the Sadducees, Annas, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, they are the most powerful names in that day. They have people under them who can carry out tasks in their name, uh, but they recognize here, okay, Peter is he's challenging our power here. He's got 5,000 people. Around. By what authority are you doing this? What name are you doing this? Who are you? And in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, right? He's saying, you're not the center. Jesus is the center, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. I don't care John, Alexander, Annas, Caiaphas, not your name, but only Jesus' name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what Peter responds with. It's amazing. Peter is, is standing in the midst of the most powerful people in his community. They've already arrested him. Verse 21 says that they threatened Peter and John, but when they threatened Peter and John, they say, whither it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, I'll be honest. Like, I was trying to, like, 
write a point after this, and I'm like, I got no points. How come I got no points? And I'll be like, oh, it's because I have no idea what kind of courage this is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I've never been under the threat of arrest for my faith. For Peter and John, this is a matter of life and death. I've never had to fear for my life because of my faith. This kind of courage is staring death right back in the eyes. I've shared the gospel with people who aren't Christian, and you know, pretty much everyone knows who, my who I'm a pastor. Most of my neighbors know, so I see them like not. I see them walk on the other side of the street when I'm coming, <laughs> right? I receive some contempt from strangers, even family and friends from my faith. They're not gonna kill me though. <laughs> They're not gonna call the cops on me. The cops wouldn't even arrest me for that in, in, in this country. I've been overseas on missions and I've had to sacrifice comfort and money, but I didn't encounter hostility, right? We weren't like, yeah, we're gonna go to this country and we might not come back. People are gonna be like, no, why would we do that? never experienced this kind of courage. I think for us, you know, we struggle, just, let's, let's just kind of do a shotgun effect here. We, we struggle maybe with speaking the truth of God's word, maybe even in community groups, you know? In a generally safe place out of fear how it will be received. That's why Proverbs says, um, a friend gives blows, but an enemy blows kisses, because friends out of love of the person, even if that there might be some micro-conflict, will tell that person truth. But an enemy will say, you're fine, walk away. We struggle with speaking the truth and love to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe. Worried about, you know, um, how we'll be received. We struggle with sharing the gospel to friends or co-workers. You know, social stigma. Maybe because we feel like we won't be able to move up in the company if they find out. People treat us differently. And these things are relatively small compared to Peter and John's situation. And so this past week, I've really, really had to do a gut check, you know, as I was studying this passage, uh, because I realized, man, I'm not, even at, I'm not even on this level. Like, I'm not, not even, I'm like, there's a cosmic gap, right? I, I struggle with approval, you know? I struggle with uh, conflict in relationships. And even that conflict is, is so small compared to the conflict in this passage. I struggle with courage and faith in God's promises uh, that his word, as Isaiah chapter 55 says, will accomplish that which he purposes. I need so much courage. And I ask myself, why do I lack courage? You know, I was like, I was like, kind of like, now it goes back to my center, right, of being a pastor, and I'm like, I've been a pastor for, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm so weak sauce, right? I was like, shame is coming down, I don't deserve to be a pastor, blah, blah, blah. Why, why do I lack so much courage? Because my center is not Jesus, it's been my efforts, and no amount of effort, friends, is going to give you this kind of courage, because true courage is sacrificial. It always costs, not the other person something, it costs you something. That's true biblical courage. No one gains but Jesus. That, that, you, you take the cost, right? And so as I was studying this, this passage spoke to me tremendously, and I realized as I was, look, I was reading this, oh, how, where did Peter get this courage? It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So I, I lack the fullness of the Holy Spirit to fill me with the very glory and grace of God. I'm lacking the Holy Spirit to see what spiritualized faith, what is courageous? How does the Holy Spirit come? We see this in verse 29 to 31. They begin to pray. What do they pray for? Courage, right? Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. not through our own efforts. It's not through you know, reading more books. It's only by the Holy Spirit and prayer that you and I can be courageous for Jesus. That you and I can receive each other and not be greatly annoyed by each other with each other's courageousness. I mean, this is what Moses says when God calls him to lead Israel into the promised land. Moses is deeply scared he's lacking courage so he prays god if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from here right moses recognized that foolhardiness is not courage courage must have the spirit of god this is what moses tells joshua before he passes because he knows joshua will need courage too and god tells joshua be courageous why because you're strong, because you're a military warrior? No, because I am with you. I am with you. And this has been so profound for me this entire week because there are uh, so many fears I struggle with, and, and I'm going to assume that there are so many fears that you struggle with too. And I want us to be courageous for Jesus in a very biblical and edifying and wise way. And friends, church, this shows us how that when we experience adversity, true biblical courage only comes from the Holy Spirit and prayer, right? You need the presence and the Spirit of God. This brings us to the last point, courage and grace. At the end of our passage, it says that uh, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, right? So they're just not being courageous, they have grace. How was that grace displayed? There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what this teaches us is that courage is not biblical courage without grace. You know, sometimes, you know, we can be like this courage warrior, and we're just like, just just like, just like kind of just Bible thumping maybe. But without grace, courage is just arrogance and pride. And grace is not biblical grace without courage. Without courage, grace is just cowardice and complacency. 
So you can't have true biblical courage without grace. You can't have true biblical grace without courage. You can't have one without the other. It's a package deal, you see? You have to be both, lion and the lamb. So in the early church, we see just this tremendous courage in their continual testimony to Christ in the midst of persecution and arrest and even death. But we also see that there was tremendous grace among them. Right there, look at the path. They're serving one another in humility. Right, they're, they're giving sacrificially. They're loving each other. They're bearing with each other. They're one with each other. You know, it's not like the early church was sinless, but they're one. True courage is sacrificial, you see? True courage will require you to be sacrificially gracious. It will always cost you something. Your pride, your time, your energy, your resources. And that's why it's so important to be rooted in prayer and with the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit in prayer, we may have courage for our own interests, but that's not biblical courage. Biblical courage is always balanced by grace. And so in the church, we see this paradoxical blend of courage and grace. Kind of tricky, huh? I always believe that the gospel requires us to live in the tension, you know? It's not just law and grace, it's, it's in that tension. Sometimes we need law, sometimes we need grace. How do we know what we need when we come to him naturally, you know? For 30 years, he was a carpenter, and then what happens when he's baptized? The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The Holy Spirit filled him. And while his disciples are always sleeping, Jesus is doing what? He's getting away for prayer because he knows he needs the Holy Spirit to be courageous and gracious. He cannot depend on his own personality or his disposition, right? Some of us are more courageous by disposition or worldly courageous, and some of us are more worldly gracious by disposition, but to be both and to be like Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. And it filled Jesus with so much love and so much compassion and determination with so much hope of the end in mind, because sometimes when we are caught in the midst of adversity, it's hard for us to see the end in mind. And Jesus prevailed. He is on the throne right now. And you and I need to have that end in mind, that Jesus is on the throne. And he already knows how every day of your life is going to go. He knows every struggle of yours, every sin, and he's died for it. And he wants to redeem you. And he will redeem you perfectly one day in heaven, and that is a promise. And he's going to fulfill that promise now, and you have to have that end in mind. You see, when you don't have Christ in the picture, friends, it's, it's just impossible. The Christian life is just impossible. It's so funny because when I was preparing this sermon, typically, you know, sometimes I'll forget, and I'll just go into writing or reading, and I had to get up. And while I was preparing the sermon, I put on my whiteboard, and you're going to be like, oh, like, this seems so simple. Why did Pastor Rich have to write it? First thing, pray. <laughs> so, pray. Pray for who? What, what, what? And literally after like five things, then I say, sermon prep. It's so impossible. Without faith in Christ, biblical courage in the face of adversity is impossible. Without fellowship with the God of grace, biblical grace in the face of adversity is impossible. Without communion with Christ, spiritual fullness and prayer in the face of adversity is impossible. 
So we got to look at the cross with faith. You gotta, it's going to take tremendous faith. You got to look at the cross with faith. When you do that, Jesus' courage will become your courage. His spirit and prayers will become your spirit and prayers. His grace will become your grace. He will become your center. Risen, we are inadequate to accomplish these things, but Jesus is fully adequate. He is fully sufficient, and like the sun, he lights up everything he touches. If we humble ourselves and come to him. So let's come to him. Gracious God, we come before you and, and we, we encounter a text that is about, uh, well, the event of it is about 2,000 years old. And we are very, very far, move, far removed from that context. But we don't want to be, I don't think we want to be far removed in a sense that we want to have the courage and grace of the early church. But we know that that is always formed in the face of adversity. Comfortable Christians don't go well. Comfortable Christians don't get transformed well. It's always when you are prodding and poking our center. Any foundation, anything that is not you, you want to chip away. That is the project of our lives. And so we come before you and we ask, we pray, we pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, that you would convict us of our sin, that we would throw ourselves on the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and that would fill us with courage, courage to live with you as our center courage to be loyal to only you courage to maybe maybe even give up our life for you we know that there are brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that even right now we pray for them that you would give them courage to proclaim your good news so that souls may be saved we ask that we would have this mission in mind as the DNA of our church, that we would be a church of prayer so that your spirit would fill us. We pray this in Jesus' name.